Tomorrow's Wall Street Titan might be an AI bot. 40% of all open job roles in finance today are for AI-related hires, and almost half of firms cite AI as a way to improve customer experiences. Find out more about the impact of AI on finance later in the podcast. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. There's all this talk about, you know, relationships and AI. Like, could you see yourself developing a relationship with an AI? I'd say yes, as a reliable tool that enhances my life, makes my life better. I'm Emily Chang, and this is The Circuit. We're inside a nondescript building in the heart of San Francisco, where one of the world's buzziest startups is making our AI-powered future feel more real than ever before. It's giving me very Westworld spa vibes. It's almost like suspended in space and time a little bit. They're behind two monster hits, ChatGPT and Dali, and somehow beat the biggest tech giants to market, kicking off this competitive race that's forced them all to show us what they've got. Is it magic? Is it just algorithms? Is it gonna save us or destroy us? To help us separate AI hype from reality, I sat down with LinkedIn co-founder and Facebook investor, Reid Hoffman, who was an early backer and board member of OpenAI. He also used ChatGPT to write a novel. But first, here's my conversation with Mira Marathi, chief technology officer from inside OpenAI. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's really great to have you. I know you've been very busy. I want you to take us back a little bit. When you were making the decision about releasing ChatGPT into the wild, I'm sure there was like a go or no-go moment. Take me back to that day. You know, we had ChatGPT for a while, and we had been exploring it internally and with a few trusted users. And we realized that we sort of hit a point where we could really benefit from having more feedback and having more people try to break it and try to figure out how best to use it. Let's make sure that we've got some guardrails in place and start rolling it out incrementally so we can get feedback from how people are using it, what are the risks, what are the limitations, and learn more about this technology that we have created and start bringing it in the public consciousness. So you wanted people to break it? Or try. Yes, we definitely wanted people to try to break it and find the fragilities in the system. We had reached a point where we had done a lot of that internally and with a small group of people, uh, external experts as well, and we wanted more external researchers to play with it. It became the fastest growing tech product in history. Did that surprise you? I mean, what was your reaction to the world's reaction? Yeah, it was a huge surprise for us. We were surprised by how much it captured the imaginations of the general public and how much people just loved 
spending time talking to this AI system and interacting with it. I want to take a step back a little bit, you know, because a lot of people still don't really understand how it works. ChatGPT is trained on, you know, tons and tons of data and text. Mm -hmm. It can now mimic a human, it can write, it can code. At the most basic level, and in the most succinct way that you can, how does it work? How does this all happen? So ChatGPT is a neural network that has been trained on a huge amount of data on a massive supercomputer. And the goal during this training process was to predict the next word in a sentence. And we found out that by doing this, we also got the ability to understand the world in text more like humans do. The goal here is to have these systems have more robust concepts of reality, mm -hmm. similar to how we think of the world. We don't just think and reason in text. Mm -hmm. We also obviously have the world in mm -hmm. images, visual world around us. That's been the goal over time, which is why we've been adding more and more modalities. And it turns out that as you train larger and larger models, add more and more data, the capabilities of these models um, also increase. They become more powerful, more helpful, and as you invest more on alignment and safety, they become more reliable mm -hmm. and safe over time. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal story. I know you grew up in Albania. What was the road like from Albania to Silicon Valley? I grew up in Albania and um, when I was growing up in Albania. It was a pretty tumultuous place uh, politically and economically, so I always knew that I wanted to study abroad. I always loved learning, and in this, this pursuit of knowledge took me to Canada on a scholarship, and from there I came to the U.S., um, and I've stayed in the U.S. ever since. You've worked on aerospace, you worked at Tesla, you worked on virtual reality. How did you become CTO of OpenAI? It's been, my training has been in mechanical engineering. I've always loved math and physics, and these were my favorite subjects as a kid. So my training took me from aerospace engineering to mm. automotive engineering, and then in applications in virtual reality and augmented reality. But there was always this, you know, um, deep technological advancement in pursuit of some problem um, that makes our lives a little better. And five years ago, that brought me to OpenAI because I thought that there is no other more important problem that I could be working on than artificial general intelligence. And I joined OpenAI to help with leading research teams. Um, and from there, I went on to build the product team. Um, and, you know, after having done a few of the roles in the company uh, and having built a lot of the technical teams, uh, I'm now leading all of the technical mm -hmm. teams at OpenAI. So as CTO, how do you set the pace of OpenAI's technology development? How do you balance speed versus responsibility versus mm -hmm. safety? Like, how do you, where are your priorities, yeah. essentially? So I think today we are dealing with unprecedented advancement in technology. And I think the most important thing we can do is to manage its advancement mm -hmm. and do so in a way that's going to 
benefit people, maximize the number of amazing applications that AI can bring and really fuel this energy that people have about interacting with AI and making great use of AI, but also giving people the tools to do so in a reliable and safe way. So at OpenAI, our safety teams and research teams collaborate very closely and safety teams are integrated in many of our research domains, but we also provide more room for long-term research mm -hmm. for, for safety and policy research as well. It's important to work both on kind of the near-term present issues that we see clearly, but also have make a lot of room for exploratory and frontiers research when it comes to safety and policy. So ChatGPT could revolutionize so many things, and obviously AI more broadly. What are the things you're most excited about? Like, what's the amazing? What I'm most excited about is how it will transform education and our ability to learn. Because you can really see that advancing society. In a way, you know, there are many, even the most advanced societies today are quite limited when it comes to education. There is this formula mm -hmm. on how people are supposed to learn. And uh, we all learn very differently. We have different interests. Mm -hmm. And so I think by using technologies like ChatGPT, the underlying models, we can really build custom virtual tutors or virtual teachers um, that can help us learn about the things that we are really interested in, can really push our creativity. And by pushing human knowledge and human creativity, um, I think we can really transform um, the, the fabric of society. What about the scary stuff? Like, what are you most concerned about? You know, whenever you have a technology that is so powerful and so general, there's always the other side of it. And there are always um, the risks that we have to worry about. And we've been very vocal about this um, since the beginning of OpenAI and very active in studying the limitations um, that come with the technology. Right now, one of the things that I'm most worried about is um, the ability of models like GPT-4 mm -hmm. to make up things. Mm -hmm. We refer to this as hallucinations. Mm -hmm. So they will convincingly make up things and it requires you know being aware and being um, and, and just really knowing that you cannot fully blindly rely on what uh, the technology is providing as an output but on the other hand it also makes it glaringly obvious mm -hmm. that this is a tool with which you're collaborating people can misuse it in various ways they can spread uh, misinformation it can be misused in high stakes scenarios mm -hmm. so from GPT 3.5 to GPT 4, we work very hard to reduce hallucinations or increase the factual outputs of the models. Um, and we worked on GPT 4 for over six months just to make it more aligned, safer, more helpful, more accurate, more reliable. Um, and held back the release of the model so that we could focus on these aspects of it. But it's far from perfect. And we're continuing to work on it and get the feedback from the daily use and make the model better and more reliable. 
I want to talk about this term hallucination because it's a very human term. Mm -hmm. Why use such a human term for basically an AI that's just making mistakes? A lot of these general capabilities are actually quite human-like. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we don't know the answer to something, we will just make up an answer. We will rarely say, I don't know. There is a lot of human hallucination <laughs> in a conversation, and sometimes we don't do it on purpose. So we're constantly borrowing from the way that we learn, the way we see the world, to um, have a more intuitive understanding of the systems. Shouldn't we be worried about AI, though, that feels more and more human? Like, should AI have to identify itself as artificial? when it's interacting with us. I think it's a different kind of intelligence. It is important to distinguish um, output that's been provided by a machine versus another human, mm -hmm. so you have that understanding. But we are moving towards a world where collaborating with these machines more and more, and so output will be hybrid mm -hmm. from a machine and a human. And so they're almost like, you know, amplifying tools that are pushing a ability that we already have, whether that's reasoning or creativity. Mm -hmm. And these machines are helping us mm -hmm. push the bounds of that even further. So it's going to be difficult to you know, uh, distinguish the output once you have this collaborative mm -hmm. engagement between the human and the machine. The air of confidence, obviously, that ChatGPT mm -hmm. sometimes delivers an answer with is it can take you off your toes a little bit, right? Why not just sometimes say, I don't know, or program that into ChatGPT? Yeah. So it turns out that when you're building such a general technology, like with large language models, the goal is to predict the next word mm -hmm. in a sentence. The goal is not to predict the next word reliably or safely. Just from this simple goal, we got the ability to understand uh, language quite well. We got a lot of creativity, ability to even code. And it turns out when you have such general capabilities, it's very difficult to um, handle some of the limitations, mm -hmm. such as what is correct. Also, the model doesn't really know much about the user mm -hmm. in terms of their context and their preferences. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still the early days, and that's why we're pushing out these systems slowly, in a controlled way, but in a way that allows us to get some feedback from how people are using them so we can use that, implement it, and make them better and more reliable. One thing that we did recently with um, ChatGPT is we, we rolled out this uh, ability to browse the internet so that it can become a bit more reliable on questions that have factual mm -hmm. nature. And this is now offered as a plugin on ChatGPT mm -hmm. Plus service. Mm -hmm but it's still the early days and this feature is only in alpha. Some of these texts and some of the data is biased. Some of it may be incorrect. Isn't this gonna accelerate the misinformation problem? I mean, we haven't been able to crack it on social media for like a couple of decades. Misinformation is a really complex, hard problem. But you know, as these systems become smarter, it's actually also easier to guide them because you can give direction in just natural language and say, I don't want you to do X thing. Then the system, by being more intelligent, more capable, has the ability to actually follow that particular instruction. Mm -hmm. 
um, obviously with more powerful models you're also expanding the profile of risks and so you have more risks that you need to understand and deal with. There are several things that we are exploring. Um, for example, one of the things uh, that we've been researching and exploring is watermarking the output, right. where you are able to distinguish what is AI-generated output versus human-generated output. There are ways to deal with it also from a policy standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think it's a complex issue that needs to be addressed from research, policy perspective. Um, but on the other hand, also, you know, society needs to adapt to these challenges and uh, the capabilities that these models are bringing. Mm -hmm. Just like we adapted, you know, to yeah. using calculators and um, other technologies. There's this sort of like underlying anxiety, I feel like when you talk yeah. to most people about AI, you know, that's cool, but it's also scary. Mm -hmm. And I've heard AI experts talk about the potential for the good future versus the bad future. And the bad future gets kind of scary. You know, there's yeah. talk about this lead leading to human extinction. Mm -hmm. Are those people wrong? You know, there's certainly a risk that when we have these AI systems that are able to set their own goals, they decide that their goals are not aligned with ours and uh, they do not benefit from having us around and could lead to human extinction. I don't think this risk has gone up or down from the things that have been happening in the past few months. I think it's certainly been quite uh, hyped mm -hmm. and there is a lot of anxiety around it. While this risk is important and we need to work on frontier research to figure out how to deal with super intelligent AI alignment, we are dealing with a lot of risks today that are very real, very present, um, very high probability that they impact us. Mm -hmm. And I think if we cannot figure out how to handle and deal with these risks while the stakes are low, then um, you know we wouldn't have much hope to deal with it when things are more complex. Mm -hmm. So my view is a bit more pragmatic that one where you know we really need to figure out how to deal with the present risks that the systems pose and coordinate among developers and work with regulators, legislators, governments, uh, various countries to come up with reasonable policies um, and regulation around AI. Elon, Steve Wozniak, a bunch of other you know experts have called for a six-month pause on AI development. Do you have any intention of slowing down? Or what's your response to that letter? So the letter from F FLI mm -hmm. makes a lot of good points about the risks that the technology poses. And we've been talking about some of them. OpenAI has been very vocal about these risks for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing active research on them. One of them is acceleration. I think that's a significant risk that we as a society need to grapple with. The private companies and um, governments need to work together to um, figure out the risks that acceleration brings. Building safe AI systems that are general is very complex. It's incredibly hard. And I don't think that it can be reduced to a parameter set by a letter. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes, you know, who, 
who is abiding to this letter? Mm -hmm. Is it all different countries in the world? How, how is that happening? Mm -hmm. I think the issue in reality is far more complex and it requires coordination from private companies, from uh, governments and figuring out how do you deal with these advancements in technology versus blocking advancements. Connecting human-led responsible AI with rich data sets is driving financial innovation in new and unexpected ways. Imagine a bank that uses AI to help detect fraud or a personalized financial planning tool that knows when you want to retire and where. Pretty amazing, right? But financial services companies need a secure and resilient network to support AI architecture. With the Next Level Network from AT&T Business, AI data travels at low latency through reliable, fast connectivity. So financial leaders can focus on what matters most, a better future for their businesses and their customers. Learn about connected solutions from AT&T Business at att.com slash y att business. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. There have been parallels drawn to the Manhattan Project, which, you know, they gathered the best scientific minds to develop nuclear weapons. And Robert Oppenheimer, who led that project, said when he saw the first bomb detonate, a line from Hindu scripture ran through his head. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I realize this sounds dramatic, but if we're talking about the risk for human extinction, you know, not being totally out of the question. Like, in your development of AI, have you had a moment like that where you're just like, wow, this is, this is big? I think a lot of us at OpenAI joined because we thought that this would be the most important technology that humanity would ever create. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly think that. Um, now, with that comes a lot of responsibility, of course. I think AI is going to be amazing. It already is. It has this incredible potential to extend our creativity and human knowledge and make our lives better in so many vectors. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the risks, on the other hand, are also pretty uh, significant. Mm -hmm. And this is why we're here. I just rewatched the movie Her, which has this very vivid depiction of life with AI. In 10 years, how will our lives be different? How will daily life be different? I haven't watched the movie Her. <laughs> so I, I've you haven't had a lot about of time. It. <laughs> I hope 10 years is a long time, but I hope that in the next few years, we will have a future where um, we use AI systems as tools to amplify a lot of our own abilities um, and I hope that we have systems that help 
bring customized education mm -hmm. to as many people out there as possible. And I hope that they, you know, we can build tools, diagnostic tools, or ways to understand diseases and the problems in healthcare much, much earlier and figure out how to deal with them at scale. And, you know, we're dealing with massive problems in climate change, figuring out new solutions, figuring out ways in which we can help reduce the, the risks that climate change poses. Could you put what you're developing here inside robots and could they combat loneliness mm. someday? I think bringing these systems into the physical world is pretty significant step. Um, feels like we're a bit far from that. Mm. But also, you know, just having a chatbot that you can ask for advice, certainly not in high-stake scenarios mm -hmm. right now, seems like that would be helpful for yeah. a lot of people. But that's quite profound that mm -hmm. we could someday have relationships with computers. In a way, we already do, right? Like we're spending so much time on our computers, we're always on our phones, we're almost like enslaved to this interaction that we have with the keyboards and with the touch screen. I think a lot about my kids and them having relationships with AI someday and this thing that has much more time to spend with them than I do. How do you think about what the limits should be and what the possibilities should be when you're thinking about a child? I think we should be very careful in general with putting very powerful systems in front of more vulnerable populations. People under 13 cannot access it and even under 18 requires parental supervision. So there are certainly checks and balances in place because it's still early and yeah. we still don't understand all the ways in which this could affect people. There's also some business interests here, and by releasing ChatGPT, OpenAI has kind of turbocharged this competitive frenzy. Do you think you can beat Google at its own game? Do you think you can take significant market share in search? You know, we didn't set out to, to dominate search when we built ChatGPT. In fact, it actually started uh, as a project around understanding and dealing with truthfulness of mm -hmm. large language models and then it, it evolved. But I think what ChatGPT offers is a different way to understand information mm -hmm. and a different way to interact with the same tool. And you could be, you know, searching, but you're searching in a much more intuitive way versus mm -hmm. keyword-based. That is definitely an, an outcome that we saw afterwards, and we, we built an interface that would allow people to interact with it much more smoothly. And as we can see, it is pushing other people to build more assistant-like products, big companies and small companies. I think the whole world is sort of now moving in this direction. I think our focus will remain on building these general technologies mm. and figuring out how we can bring them to the public in ways that are useful. Mm -hmm. So there's this report that these workers in Kenya were getting paid $2 an hour to do the work on the back end to make answers less toxic. And my understanding is this work is, it can be difficult, right? Because you're reading texts that might be disturbing and trying to clean them up, right? Like, what's your response to that? So we need to use contractors sometimes to scale 
you know, in, in this particular case, we chose that particular contractor because of their known safety standards, and since then we've stopped working with them. But as you said, this is difficult work, and we recognize that, and we have mental health standards and wellness standards that we share with contractors. Um, when we engage them. All of the data that you're using, and this has been talked about a lot, like all of the data that you're training this AI on, it's coming from writers, it's coming from artists, it's coming from other people have created who've created things. How do you think about giving value back to those people when these are also people who are worried about their jobs going away? This, these models are trained on a lot of uh, public information, a lot of data on the internet, and also licensed mm -hmm. data. And the output that is generated by the models is original. Our users, they have all, all the rights mm -hmm. to that output. I know Microsoft has been doing some research on this, on how do you make sure that you recognize the value that people are bringing with mm -hmm. their data. Um, and there is some research that has been done in this direction with um, the Data Dignity Project. Mm -hmm. Um, that some folks at Microsoft have been working on. And there is some research of figuring out the economics of this and how, how, how to do that at scale. Mm. I don't know exactly how it would work in practice, that you can sort of account for information created by everyone on the internet, but there is probably some other way where, you know, people contributing specific kind of data mm. can sort of have a share mm -hmm. of, of um, the, the gains mm -hmm. produced by this model. I'm not sure exactly how that would work, but I think there is some research on the economics uh, of this, and I think it's definitely worth exploring further. As far as the question of jobs goes, I think there are definitely going to be jobs that will be lost and jobs that will be changed. I think there will be a lot of jobs that will be created as well. We don't know exactly what they are and probably some of them we can't even imagine, like prompt engineering is a job today. That's not something that we could have predicted. It's a totally uh, new earlier. category. So what does responsible innovation look like to you? You know, like would you support, for example, a federal agency like the FDA that vets technology like it vets drugs? You know, having some sort of trusted authority that can audit these systems based on some agreed upon principles would be very helpful. Yeah. And having some standards around predicting capabilities um, and auditing the systems once they're trained could be helpful. Do OpenAI employees still vote on AGI and when it will happen? <laughs> I actually don't know. <laughs> I believe that what they did yeah, at I one think point, we kind right? Of I think we kind of do it, but I don't know last time we did What is your prediction about AGI now and how far away it really is? This is when computers can learn and ra reason and rationalize just as good as us, if not better. I think we're making a ton of progress mm -hmm. on technology and it is really helping us in so many ways, but we're still quite far away from uh, being at a point where you know, these systems can make decisions autonomously um, and discover new knowledge mm -hmm. that we couldn't have predicted previously. So is that decades away? Mm, I'm not sure. Is it sooner than you thought when you started this work? I don't know if it's sooner. I think I have more certainty around the advent of 
having powerful systems in our future that will be able to make decisions autonomously and um, discover new knowledge. Should we even be driving towards AGI? And do humans really want it? Do we want computers to be smarter than us, ultimately? Even though we don't know what that really looks like or means. I think that through the course of history, pushing human knowledge has pushed our societies in so many different ways. Um, it has, it's been key to advancing our society. And I think it would be a mistake to halt technological innovation or our ability to pursue human knowledge further. Um, and I'm not even sure that that's possible in the first place, but theoretically, if it were, I think it would be a mistake. A lot of our inspiration and advancements in society come from pushing human knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that we should do so in careless and reckless ways. I think there are ways to guide this development and manage this development versus bring it to a screeching halt mm -hmm. because of our potential fears. So the train has left the station and we should stay on it. That's one way to put it. <laughs> For now. <laughs> I'm sure ChatGPT would say it much more eloquently. Beyond OpenAI, there's an artificial intelligence gold rush happening in Silicon Valley. Venture capitalists are pouring money into anything AI startups, hoping to find the next big thing. Now, here's my conversation with Reid Hoffman, who knows a thing or two about striking gold. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so grateful yeah. to have you, and obviously you've helped us make sense of platform shifts over, I mean, gosh, 12 years yeah. we've been talking. Maybe longer. Mm -hmm. oh, that's yeah, awesome. A long time, yes. more than a decade. Mm. Generative AI mm. has had two big hits so far, mm. Dolly mm. and ChatGPT, yes. both from OpenAI. Yes. Why do you think ChatGPT exploded? more than Instagram, mm. even more than TikTok? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is, it's a little bit like the movie industry and each year has a new biggest box office. The world's more connected, there's more people, there's more curiosity about what's going on. So you have your new biggest hit. Yeah. So there's always that as a backdrop. This will be the year, um, as I kind of put on fireside chatbots, where one or more of the person of the, list, uh, the year lists will be a chatbot or an AI mm. or open AI or something like this mm. as a way of doing that. Because it's a magical experience to say suddenly, I can have a conversation with this thing like I'm talking to another person and it not being another person, right? That's like, that has not happened in history till November sometime last year. Right. And so that's why I think it exploded. You have been on the ground floor of some of the biggest tech platform shifts in history the beginnings of the internet, mobile. Do you think AI is gonna be even bigger? I think so, at minimum for the following reason, which is it builds on the internet, mobile, cloud, data. All of these things come together to make AI work. And so that causes it to be the crescendo, the, the addition to all of us. So now, AI is gonna be bigger than all those things. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Yes. Absolutely. But now part of it's because just like we saw with ChatGBT, we have billions of people connected in the world. They can all reach it very quickly too. So all of a sudden you start interacting with it. Mm -hmm. and, and then you begin to think, well, what could happen with AI here? I mean, one of the problems with the current discourse is it's, not, it's too much of the fear-based versus hope-based. Imagine a tutor on every smartphone for every child 
in the world who has access to a smartphone. Imagine a doctor on every smartphone where many communities don't have any access to doctors. That's line of sight from what we see with current AI models today. You coined this term, blitzscaling. Mm. Does AI blitzscale? Well, it certainly seems like it today, doesn't it? <laughs> the speed at which we will integrate it into our lives will be faster than we integrated the iPhone into our lives. There's gonna be a co-pilot for every profession. And if you think about that, that's huge. Well, that changes industries, that changes products. And not professional activities, because it's going to write my kids' papers, right? My uh, kids' high school papers? Uh, <laughs> yes, although the hope is that in the interaction with it, they'll learn to create much more interesting papers. You and Elon Musk go way back. Mm. He co-founded OpenAI with Sam mm. Altman, the CEO of OpenAI. What did Elon say that got you interested so early? Elon came to me and said, look, this AI thing is coming. You know, I always trust people from my network who are smart to say, go look at this, I'll go look, I'm always curious. Once I started digging into it, I realized that this pattern that we're gonna see the next generation of amazing capabilities coming from these kind of, mm -hmm. you know, computers, computational mm -hmm. devices, and that that's something that could shape a much better society that we'd all be in, and that's the reason I do technology. Um, one of the things I would, had been arguing with Elon at the time about was that Elon was constantly using the word robocalypse, which, you know, we as human beings tend to be more easily and quickly motivated by fear than by hope. So you're using the term robocalypse and everyone imagines the Terminator and all the rest. It sounds pretty scary. It sounds very scary. Robocalypse doesn't like, sound like something like, we want. Yeah, stop saying that. Because <laughs> actually, in fact, the, 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 the chance that I could see anything like a robocalypse happening is so de minimis relative to everything else. How remote is, is, is the chance of a robocalypse in your mind? Let me put it this way. I'm more worried about what technology does in the hands of humans than I am about a robocalypse. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen through the scaling of these large language models is that the larger you get, the easier it is to train them to be aligned to human interests. Mm -hmm. That's good. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be attentive. But that's exactly the kind of thing where you can build to a really good future and be motivated by hope and optimism versus fear. So Connecting human-led responsible AI with rich data sets is driving innovation in new and unexpected ways. But financial services companies need a secure and resilient network to support AI architecture. With the next level network from AT&T Business, AI data travels at low latency through reliable, fast connectivity. So financial leaders can focus on what matters most, a better future for their businesses and their customers. Learn about connected solutions from AT&T Business at att.com slash y hyphen att hyphen business. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Just on Elon for a second, you did come together on OpenAI. Yeah. Yes. How did that happen? I think it started with Elon and Sam having a bunch of conversations. Uh, and then since I know both of them quite well, I got called in. Something should be the counterweight to all of the natural work that's going to happen within commercial realms, right? Within uh, companies, you know, building this, which is, by the way, 
I'm, as you know, a huge fan that companies can build really good things. I'm not an anti-company, and you know, <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, but it's good to have the counterweight too. And as part of having that counterweight, what, how do you bring in considerations like, well, what are we gonna do for um, a bunch of people who are uh, not as well off ec uh, economically or anything else? And how do we make sure they're included? How do we make sure that uh, one company doesn't dominate the industry, but the tools are provided across the industry so innovation can benefit from startups and all the rest? I was like, great, uh, and let's do this thing, OpenAI. Sam Altman has said he thinks this is gonna usher in this new era of economic prosperity. Hmm. It's obviously gonna change a lot of jobs. It's going to eliminate a lot of jobs. Is it going to create enough jobs to balance all that out? So you can't 100% say absolutely yes because it's part of the uncertain part of human nature and human progress. But the same question has confronted us multiple times. It's confronted us on the move from agriculture to industry. It's confronted us in computerization of things like, you know, and, and again, fear first is like, oh my God, it's gonna completely change. And a lot of work is people to people interaction. And people to people interaction can be education, it can be medicine, it could be legal, it could be communications. I think that all of that, there's infinite demand for that work. Entertainment, you know, media, there's infinite demand for that. And so those can, open up uh, new realms of jobs and all the rest. Am I ultimately very optimistic that it will create a lot more jobs than it will consume? The answer is yes. That doesn't mean it won't consume jobs and it doesn't mean that we have to not navigate the transition. The revolution of moving from agriculture to industry, we had a lot of suffering in the cities as we moved to manufacturing and all the rest. And you say, okay, let's try to minimize these transitions. I did ask ChatGPT what questions I huh? should ask you. I thought its questions were pretty boring. Yes. Your answers were pretty boring too. So we're not getting replaced anytime soon. Yes. But clearly this has really struck a nerve. Mm -hmm. This Bing thing, Bing's yes. chatbot saying, yes. telling folks it's in love with yes. them. Yes. There are people out there who are gonna fall for it. Yes. Shouldn't we be worried about that? So that's a de minimis worry, I think, that specific one. Hmm. Um, and the reason is, okay, so everyone's encountered a crazy person who's drunk off their ass at a cocktail party who says really odd things, or at least every adult has. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that's not like the world didn't end, <laughs> right? And so the real issues, I think, are things like if we put in a whole bunch of computational systems that we, on a trajectory to, to improving areas of racial bias or discrimination, now, I think AI can be a very positive tool on that because we can improve it, we can learn it, we can fix it. We can probably fix it better than we can fix, for example, systems of judges issuing paroles, probably easier to do iteratively by studying it and getting it better through an AI system, which will function in, in partnership, not in replacement, but as a way of kind of improving those things. So those are the things that really matter. We do have to, we do have to pay attention to areas that are harmful. Like for example, someone's depressed, they're thinking about self-harm. You want all channels by which they could get into self-harm to be limited. That isn't just chatbots. That could be communities of human beings. That could be search engines. You have to pay attention to all the dimensions of it. And by the way, you can never get it perfect. So I agree, like, computers don't have feelings. This, these chatbots are just predicting yes. the next word yes. in a string, right? Yes. What does worry me as a, as a mom yeah. is my kids. Yes. So what if my kid is spending more time talking to a chatbot than me? 
or developing relationships with these chatbots, mm. or making decisions based on what a chatbot has told them or nudged them to do. Like, why shouldn't I be terrified of that? Well, I think the question is, is what kind of relationship and what are they nudging them to do? So for example, <laughs> say you had a, your, your kid and the kid was interacting with a chatbot that was causing them to reflect on who they were and their feelings a little bit better and help them discover themselves. And they're like, well, that seems to be an okay relationship, maybe better than, than their friends at school even in some ways and help them kind of be, a, uh, to, to follow the path they wanna be doing. Or say, for example, it was like, well, here's why actually in fact doing your homework is actually useful to you. And here, you know, let, let's, let's help do that. You say, well, that's okay. So it's, it's not, the, it's not the, the fact that there's an interaction there that bothers you. It's like, is the interaction gonna be in a positive direction? Mm -hmm. Is gonna be broadly there. How are we overestimating AI right now? Many ways that we're <laughs> overestimating AI. It still doesn't really do something that I would say is original to an expert. So, for example, one of the questions I asked was, how would Reid Hoffman make money by investing in artificial intelligence? And the answer it gave me was a very smart, very well-written answer that would have been written by a professor at a business school who didn't understand venture capital, right? So it seems smart. Oh, would, it, would, would study large markets, would realize what products would be substituted in the large markets, would find teams to go do that and invest in them. And this is all written, very credible, and completely wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that's because the newest edge of the information is still beyond these systems. Now it's great when I said something like, what would Reid Hoffman say on a German documentary about settlers of Catan, <laughs> <laughs> right? And it gave a very good answer. Billions of dollars are going into AI. My yes. inbox is filled with <laughs> AI pitches. Last year it was Crypto and Web3, before that it was self-driving cars, now everyone's on the AI train. Yes. How do we know this isn't just the next bubble? Well, I think neither Web3 or, or autonomous vehicles I actually think were bubbles. I do think that the generative AI is the thing that has the broadest touch of everything. Now obviously as, as venture capitalists, part of what we do is we try to figure that out in advance, <laughs> you know, years before other people seeing coming. But I think that there will be massive new companies built. VCs have played a role in, you know, you could say in the hype cycles. How much is FOMO driving decisions right now? Uh, FOMO always drives some decisions, <laughs> as you know, because people who are not with it suddenly try to try to jump on the train, and some by the way, sometimes it works. And it is true that when you study the, the sequencing of technology, what happens is there's a wave. There's an internet wave, mm -hmm. there's a mobile wave, there's a cloud wave, there's these waves and that transforms the industries and that you need to be on that wave. So whether you were an early adopter or a late adopter, everyone goes and tries to get on the wave. There's another concern and I wonder if you share it. It does seem in some ways like a lot of AI is being developed by an elite group of companies and people. Mm. Look, in some ideal universe, you'd say for, for a technology that would impact billions of people, somehow billions of people should directly be involved in creating it. But that's not how any technology anywhere, anywhere in history gets built. It's a small number of people. How do you offset that as, and, and how do you expand that? And I think the way that you do that is try to have broader conversations. Try to be more inclusive about what the concerns are, what's going on, what their intents are. That's the thing that I, that I try to help push to. So do you see an AI mafia forming? <laughs> Um, hopefully not, especially in the exact term of mafia. I definitely think that there is 
because uh, you're referring to the PayPal Mafia. Of course. Uh, I think that there's a network of folks who have been deeply involved over the last few years and is broadening that will have a lot of influence on how the technology happens. Do you think AI will shake up the big tech hierarchy significantly? It seems like the big tech mm. giants, all of them are on their toes. Well, what it certainly does is it creates a wave of disruption. For example, with these large language models in search, what do you want? Do you want 10 blue links or do you want an answer? In a lot of search cases, you want an answer. And, an, and a generated answer that's like a Mickey mini Wikipedia page is awesome. That's a shift. When you're working in a document, do you want to just be able to pull out a template that says, here's what a memo template is? Or would you like to say, give me a first draft of a memo on how artificial intelligence can improve government services? And I draft something. And then you go, oh, OK. And startups work much more nimbly than large companies. So I think we'll see a profusion of startups doing interesting things in this. Can the next Google or Facebook really emerge if Google and Facebook or Meta and Apple and Amazon are running the playbook and Microsoft? Yes, as I tend to think we have five large tech companies heading to 10, not five heading to two or three. Mm -hmm. And it's competition, and that competition creates space for startups and all the rest. So do I think there will be another one to three companies that will be the size of the five big tech giants emerging, possibly from AI? Absolutely, yes, right? Now, does that mean that one of them is gonna collapse? No, not necessarily, and it doesn't need to. The more that we have, the better. So what are the next big five? Uh, well, that's what I'm, we're trying to invest in. <laughs> um, you're on the board of Microsoft. Yeah. Obviously, you know Microsoft is making a big AI push. How do you see the balance of power between Microsoft and Google? I think it unequivocally has a shot. But one of the things that I think that Satya said very well is at minimum with what you're seeing happening with you know, Bing Chat and everything else and what it means is, it's all of a sudden Microsoft's back in the game. Mm -hmm. It's here, it's doing stuff, it's inventing, it's creating things. What is pretty amazing to have had a, uh, a seat watching how Satya and his team are kind of uh, bringing a tech company back to where you know a few decades ago it was one of the leading tech companies and then everyone's not paying attention to it anymore, back to being a leading tech company, to doing search. Did you bring Satya and Sam or have any role in bringing Satya and Sam closer together? Because Microsoft obviously has $10 billion now in OpenAI. Both of them are close to me and know me and trust me well, so I, I think I, I've helped facilitate understanding and communications. I would not want to take anything away from how brilliant each of them is mm -hmm. and how much the thing they have architected is because they're amazing. The AI graveyard is filled with algorithms that mm. got into trouble. Mm. How mm. can we trust OpenAI or mm. Microsoft or Google mm. or anyone to do the right thing? Well, there's a whole field of AI ethics, AI safety, etc. cetera. Uh, there's people in all of these uh, companies, a lot of them, employed with asking the questions and making that work. So we need to be more transparent. Well, everyone agrees that uh, we should be protective of children. Everyone agrees that uh, we should try to make sure self-harm isn't there. Everyone agrees that um, we should try to not have this lock-in economic classes or other kinds of things and should be more broadly provisioned. But on the other hand, of course, our problem, exactly as you're alluding to, is people say, well, the AI should say that or shouldn't say that. Or the AI should allow people to say that or shouldn't allow people to say that. And you're like, well, we can't even really agree on that ourselves. 
So we don't want that to be litigated by other people. We want that to be a social decision. It's a minefield of ethics and fairness and governance mm. issues. Is the answer regulation? And how can regulation mm. possibly even keep up? When people think regulation, they think, you must come and seek approval before you do something. And that's the reason why most of these regulated industries have all massively slowed down on their innovation. So to start regulating now, I think, would be broadly dangerous and and destructive in you know, kind of how do we create and own the, the industries of the future. But that doesn't mean do nothing. Say, for example, you're working with AI companies. We'd like to hear what your top concerns are. Here are some of ours. We'd like to have you figure out how to tell us about how you're addressing our, our concerns and how you're making improvements on it month by month, year by year. Maybe you could have a dashboard. Maybe you could be telling us about, here's how you're me measuring how racial bias might creep into your systems from the data that you're training on. And if, by the way, you're not doing that well enough, then we'll talk about the next phase of regulation. But start it as a dialogue and positioning the concerns and kind of what improvements we want to see and what we'd like to see and start that way. Elon left OpenAI years ago mm. and pointed out that it's not as open as it used to be. He said he wanted it to be a nonprofit counterweight to Google. Now it's a closed source maximum profit company effectively controlled by Microsoft. Does he have a point? Uh, well, he's wrong on a number of levels there. Um, so one is it's run by a 501c3. It is a nonprofit. But it uh, does have a for-profit part. It has a for-profit, but the for-profit part has, is structurally controlled in every way that really matters by the nonprofit. Mm. Its employees run to, its board governs to, are all a nonprofit mission. The, the commercial system, which is all carefully done, is to bring in capital to support the nonprofit mission. Now, get to the question of, for example, open. So Dolly, when it was, was ready for four months before it was released, mm -hmm. why did it delay for four months? It delayed for four months because it was doing safety training. It said, well, we don't want to have this being used to create child sexual material. We don't want to have this being used for assaulting individuals or, or doing deep fakes. We don't want it to have being like revenge pornography or that kind of stuff. So we're not going to open source it. We're going to release it through an API so we can be seeing what the results are and making sure it doesn't do any of these harms. So it's open because it has open access to the APIs, but it's not open because it's open source. You've resigned from yes. the board of OpenAI because of the appearance of a conflict of yeah. interest. There are folks out there who are angry actually about OpenAI's branching out from nonprofit to for profit. Is there a bit of a bait and switch there? The first thing is to make a difference in the AI technologies and how to be a counterweight to all of the commercial things, to do that, OpenAI needs a lot of capital. The cleverness that Sam and everyone else figured out is they could say, look, we can do a, do a market commercial deal where we say we'll give you commercial um, licenses to parts of our technology in various ways, and then we can continue our mission of beneficial AI mm -hmm. because we're not primarily motivated by commercial. We're primarily, and we're primarily motivated by how do we make this great for society, great mm -hmm. for humanity. So you don't think this nonprofit to for-profit thing was a bait and switch? No, not at all. And I think that the question about, uh, look, it was all done, I think, very transparently. And I think that the question about it is, is making sure that OpenAI can provide all of the broad-based kind of AI technology across multiple industries and not be contained within one company. Mm -hmm. It can't be all AI and rainbows. 
there must be stuff that's keeping you up at yeah. night. Like, what keeps you up at night? Do I pay attention to what are the unintended consequences, how it might cement uh, layers of power? Like, for example, do I pay attention to the fact that it could flood our media ecosystems with misinformation? Yes, I absolutely pay attention to that. Of course, our media ecosystems are already flooded with misinformation. It comes from Russians hacking our political stuff, or Nigerians, or you know, Philippine farms, or weird conspiracy theories. But what really keeps me up at night is, in our fears, do we miss the things that could be really valuable, right? That's, that's part of the reason why I come out so clearly. And it's not because, like, if you literally said, like, any money that I'm gonna make from investing these days already kind of heads to my foundation and all the rest, that, that's, that's what I do. It's not because I have any economic interests here. It's because, like I think about, first you say, okay, so who will the first AI tutors be? They'll probably be for upper middle class families because of the economic things. Well, can we get them to everybody in developed countries? And then, well, what about the kids in you know Nigeria? Or what about the kids in Indonesia? Or what about the kids in you know all throughout India? Well, can we do that too? That that's the kind of thing. And and how quickly do we get there? Because I think you know we had this old expression from the '80s. Uh, no, no, it was '90s. I think the digital divide, right? Well, look, we all have a digital divide issue. That kind of thing does, definitely keeps me up. Now, again, I don't mean to be Pollyannish about this, and I. And I, do, I put a lot of energy into making sure we're asking the right, what are generally like alignment questions or safety mm -hmm. questions and so forth. But like when I read a weird Bing chat, I mostly just laugh. <laughs> AGI, when computers will be smarter than humans. How far out is that? So this is one of the kinds of things that human beings are very bad at making judgments on. What I mean is like AGI, is there a percentage that we will get a computer smarter than humans in our lifetime? And the answer is yes. And the question is, well, is it a large percentage or a small percentage? And what counts as a large percentage, a small percentage? You know, I think that percentage is small. And who knows, I mean, maybe it'll happen. And then it comes back to, well, what kind of superintelligence? So if you're worried about things being hostile, Terminator said, oh, well, that's very concerning. But if you're like, oh, well, we could create a superintelligence that is a Buddhist, and thinks that sentient life is very good and goes, oh, how do I work in collaboration with you? Well, that could be really good, <laughs> right? So, so the whole thing is, I think it's never good to be driven by your fear. I think it's much better to be driven by your curiosity, but being very diligent and, and work very hard at trying to make the right things happen. So does this mean you think super intelligence is quite a ways out? I would say that it's more likely outside of our lifetimes than in our lifetimes. Okay, I appreciate and, and a definitive yes, answer. Yes, Thank you. Yes. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Circuit. I'm Emily Chang. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Emily Chang TV. You can watch full episodes of The Circuit at Bloomberg.com. And check out our other Bloomberg podcasts on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartMedia app, or wherever you listen to shows. And let us know what you think by leaving us a review. I'm your host and executive producer. Our senior producer is Lauren Ellis. Our associate producer is Lizzie Phillip. Our editor is Sebastian Escobar. Thanks so much for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.